Swiss reformer once said, how much more would a few good men and fervent men affect ministry than a multitude of lukewarm men? And I just wonder if, if a few people in our church got serious about gospel commission, evangelistic work, what that would look like. And then I wonder, what if we all did? What if we all got excited about that? What would that look like? I love dreaming about that. I want us to look into Acts and just kind of see what Paul did. And I want to confess, this is not an, an every detail expository treatment of this text. This is me bleeding on you a little bit, me begging you to join the rest of, uh, of the people around you, to join me and us committing ourselves to one, then another, winning a person to Christ, and then if that happens, not being content, but another. If you win someone to Christ next week, I don't want you to say, well, I'll wait till 2017 now. I've accomplished my task for the year. No, one, and then another, and then another, and then another. In this passage, I think we can find four considerations, four things to think about for faithful evangelism. These come in the in kind of the staccato fashion of commands or encouragements, imperatives. The first is in verse one. Create the opportunities for witnessing. Create the opportunities for witnessing. Verse one. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, this is Paul and Silas and the men with him, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. When Paul was converted, the Lord, Acts 9 and 10, specifically in 10, with the encounter with Cornelius, commissioned Paul to be a missionary to the to the Gentiles, to take this Jewish Messiah who is the Savior of the world and explain it to everyone, especially those who weren't Jewish. Peter, by the way, was commissioned to be a, an apostle and a, and a missionary to the Jews. Now, they, Peter, as you'll read first and second, Peter obviously had uh, evangelistic uh, trophies of God's grace in the Gentile world, and Paul did in the Jewish world as well. But predominantly, God told Paul, I want you to go as a missionary to the Gentiles. Verse 2 says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them. Meaning, Paul understood that he was supposed to go to the Gentiles. Yet he shows up in every city and the first place he goes is where? The synagogue where the Jews are. This was risky. Remember those early uh, encounters that Paul had, especially in Acts 9? He's converted. Uh, he's up at Damascus. They have to lower him in a basket outside of the wall to even save his life because they were so antagonistic to him and the gospel. The Jewish friends he had. He goes back down to, to Jerusalem and his Jewish convert friends were afraid of him because they thought he was going to take them out. There was a great threat against Believe in the gospel. Paul, though, this is what you need to know from verse 1. Paul took the risk. 
He created the opportunity. He wasn't passive. Now, having said that, every opportunity we have with anyone is an evangelistic opportunity. But Paul was deliberate, intentional. He went to a place where he knew people needed to hear the gospel and specifically reasoned with them. This says for three weeks, for three Sabbaths, he did that. He took a risk. I think to be faithful in evangelism means to be a risk taker. That led him to this second consideration, number two, explain the gospel with scripture. Explain the gospel with scripture. According to Paul's custom, verse two, he went to them and for three weeks, for three Sabbaths, he talked, reasoned, argued, debated, uh, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul began with his understanding of Jesus, his Messiahship, who he was, how he was predicted, the, the gospel of him dying for the sins of those who believe, of being raised from the dead. He reasoned with them as an exegete, an expositor. He went to the Bible and explained this to them, to the scriptures. Explaining verse 3 and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and raise or rise again from the dead. There's the gospel. What his death meant, that he didn't stay dead. There are, there are no bones of Jesus in the land of Israel. And I go back again. That is the most important question any human can ever ask and answer. Where are the bones of Jesus Christ? Because if you can find them, all of Christianity falls apart. We'll find them one day inside the resurrected Lord who will invite us into his kingdom. He is risen from the grave. How did he do this? He said, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Notice that Paul's evangelism was not a plan. It wasn't four spiritual laws. It wasn't evangelism explosion. It wasn't discipleship evangelism. I've been helped by all those programs. Don't get me wrong. But he reasoned with them about a person. The gospel is a person. It's not a plan. Most of these uh, gospel presentations that we learn, the, the kind of canned approach, which I would recommend to get started, but eventually it's like training wheels. You take those off and you can just talk to someone about the gospel. But most of them, I found, actually are pretty man-centered. They begin with this. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want forgiveness? Do you want a better life? Do you want to be happy? And all that's the caboose. It's just not the engine. He reasoned with them about Christ. His gospel was a person. Remember what he told the Colossians? Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Him we proclaim. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you. He's the Christ. He is the one. He will save you from your sins. Look at the consequences here. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. It's interesting how, how this is said. If you, if you go through this passage, 
Here's what you find. He used the scriptures with persistence. He reasoned with them from the, from the scriptures. He was reasonable. He understood the Old Testament and how it climaxes in Jesus. He reasoned with them biblically. He knew book, chapter, and verse where to go to. He was cross-centered that Jesus died and why he died. Resurrection focused that he rose from the grave. Remember he told the Corinthians, if, the, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our Hope is in vain. Our gospel is, is void. He was persuasive. He persuaded them. He begged them. He wasn't too proud to beg. But then look at this. In verse 4, he was persuasive, and they joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Why is that in there? A number of the leading women. Well, if you'll remember the world of the New Testament, it was largely uh, um, driven by masculinity, not necessarily in a bad way. Women were subjected in some awful ways. But you'll find even in the language of the New Testament, you know, that, that Christ died for mankind. It was just very uh, centered on, uh, on the masculine gender. So for Paul to take this much ink and say, and some of the leading women... A number of the leading women. That's important for him to say the gospel wasn't discriminant. It is indiscriminate. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, poor. It's a very interesting word. It says some of the leading women. These were women who had influence in the community, just as we have today. There are women who lead groups and studies who are, who are uh, in charge of neighborhood uh, coordination, leading women. These were women of influence. They came to know Christ, which meant that they probably gave up a lot of their reputation to join this new Jewish sect. The point of this, though, is that Paul knew his Bible, and he reasoned about the gospel from the Scripture. It's interesting how you wed this with what he did before Felix and before Festus and before Agrippa and before the Jewish council because each of those times he reasoned with them from the scriptures. But you remember how he did it? By telling his, his testimony. He wed those two together. A great place to start an evangelism conversation is just this. Can I tell you what God's done in my life? And in explaining what God's done in our life, we would use the scripture to articulate that. I think that's the best way, biblically exemplified, to get into gospel conversations. Explain the gospel of Scripture. Number three, expect some pushback. Expect the possibility of pushback. Just, just for a second, I want you to breathe the air and smell the smells, and see the scenes, and hear the music of revival. In verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Praise God, listen to the anthem, and then comes verse 5. But the Jews. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll say, which Jews? Which Jews in this context? 
The Jews he just spent three weeks reasoning with became jealous. And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Stop right there. What happened? As Paul was teaching in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths doesn't just mean he went for three consecutive Saturdays. Sabbath was a way of indicating a whole week. He didn't just you know, preach for an hour and talk about uh, Christ and reason the scriptures and then go recluse himself for a week. For three weeks, he's with these people, talking to them, the people who are associated with the synagogue, who live within walking distance of the synagogue. Well, the more he talked, it says they became jealous. Jealous of what? Probably of his influence, probably of his knowledge, probably of his boldness, his understanding. They were jealous. And then this next phrase is incredible. And... Taking along, it's, an, it's a wonderful, well, an interesting, I should say, Greek phrase. Some wicked men from the marketplace. You know who these were? These were the local bullies. This was the brute squad. These were the bad guys. These were the guys on that corner that everyone walks around to avoid. These Jews went to them and said, we got a guy you need to take out. How do we know that? They formed a mob. And then look at the gossip and slander and set the city in an uproar. Do you think that as they reflected and relayed Paul's message to others that they were giving an accurate presentation of God, the gospel, Paul's ministry, or do you think they had some things unkind to say about Paul and Silas and even his host, Jason? I don't think I have to tell you this, but you and I should expect the possibility of pushback when we share the gospel. Question is, do you push back when they push back? Can I talk to you about what God has done in my life? No. Okay, I'm sorry. Can I tell you how you can be saved from your sins and spend eternity with God in heaven and not go to hell? No, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Do you think that's what Paul did? He reasoned with him. He said, hang on a second. Don't dismiss this so, so, so uh, quickly. Let's talk about this. Would that God would solve us and cure us from being spiritual wimps. True? I'm going to admit, I hope I don't lose all credibility as your pastor, there have been times when I have been in the middle of a conversation and I just felt like the wicked witch of the West. You know, I'm melting. I just kind of sunk into this hat and got away. So nervous, so terrified. Don't be afraid to push back to push back. When people persecute, it doesn't mean you just have to say, here's my hands, tie me to the stake. Until they do, Reason with them. That's what Paul did. For three weeks, you can't, ima- you can't think that after the first time he said that, that they said, oh, that's great, Paul, come back. I'm sure from the very beginning it was antagonistic, but he kept on reasoning. You guys know as the footnote that um, God told Paul, every time you go do this in every city, every place you go, they're gonna hate you, persecute you, and ultimately they're gonna kill you for what you're doing. Okay, let me go to the next city. 
expect the possibility of pushback. Expect the possibility that your relationships might be in danger. Expect the possibility that you're not going to be liked. Listen, if they don't like Jesus, you think they're going to like us? He's perfect. Number four, expect the posture, excuse me, upset the world with Jesus. One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, upset the world. Verse six, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, here we meet, meet Jason, and some brethren, that's believers, before the city authorities. Now, who is Jason? We're going to find out in a minute. He must have been Paul's host. He must have come to faith in Christ and asked Paul to stay with him. This was their accusation. I love this. I pray to God that someone says this about us at Mission Road. These men who have upset the world. How do you upset the world? By talking about a crucified Messiah who rose from the dead. You upset the world by telling them that Jesus Christ is determinative and everything you do goes through him. That's how you upset the world. By telling people that he's exclusive, that no one can come to the Father except through him. That's how you upset the world. The flip side of that is also how you save the world. These men have upset the world and have come here also. They've upset all the world around us. We've been hearing about Paul and Silas and their ministry and this gospel impact. Now they've come here and Jason welcomed them. And they, and this, this is so classic. They try to use the law against these believers. And now they sound all pious like they were some uh, great honorers of Caesar. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This but that began back with the Jews is an important distinction. Some will be persuaded, some won't, some will persecute. Just as in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, the Jews who did not believe the gospel became incensed about the gospel, incensed that the Gentiles would start believing the Jewish Messiah. They were, they were, it, was, it was odd. We don't want them to have anything to do with Judaism. They still thought of Jesus as a Jewish Messiah. Even though they rejected him, they didn't want the Gentiles involved with these Jews. They rejected Paul's preaching. They stirred up a riot. They got a brute squad and got all the bad guys in the city to come and find these guys. Their plan was to bring Paul and Silas before the assembly of the citizens, it says, and um, the, the politarchs, the, the, the political leaders, under the charge probably of disturbing the Pax Romana. You remember the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome? How were they disturbing the Pax Romana? Because they were saying... The Caesar is not the king. They're saying Jesus is the king. Now let me ask you this. Was that an accurate accusation? You bet it was. They didn't care who the king of Rome was. 
Jesus was not just the king of Rome. He was the king of the universe. And so when they proclaimed that, that became their little tripwire. That was their, their, uh, their, their way to trap them. See, they don't believe in Caesar, which was, by the way, a capital offense worthy of death. You know what that tells me? Is they were faithful in their description of who Jesus was. He wasn't just another Messiah, just another leader, just another uh, um, organizer of some group down in Jerusalem. Whatever they said about Jesus came to these people and gave them the conclusion that these Christians believe that Jesus is the king over Caesar, who was the king of the world at that time. What does that tell you about their proclamation of Jesus? They were passionate about Jesus, and that's, that's what they were brought to trial over, is the identity and the work of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. They were passionate about that. So they come to Jason's door. They knew he was there. Jason, where are, where are these men? They've upset the world. They're not there anymore. They've already left, so they drag Jason out, take him to court, says, and we don't exactly know what this pledge might have meant. Uh, scholars debate this. When they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. Some people say, well, that means Jason gave up uh, his faith and, and was paid off. I don't think that's what it means. I think they just kind of, my, my interpretation of this is the, the pledge that they had is they had a, a financial settlement that would, would try to, to diminish the impact of their own testimony, but Obviously, if you read the, the testimony of the Thessalonican church and the book of First and Second Thessalonians, you know that that didn't work so well. Here's the question I have looking at this, though. Their passion was about Christ. So I ask myself, and let me ask you, do you find yourself more passionate, excited, energetic, enthused, do you find yourself more passionate about the changes that you want to take place in Washington and with our government than you do in your neighborhood and with your neighbor's souls? How about work? How about school? What's our passion? Are you happy to debate the Affordable Care Act and gun rights? Health care issues. Are you happy to debate that and let people know what you think? As much so as you're happy to tell people, can I tell you about, can I tell you about God who became man? Can I tell you what he's done in my life? Can I tell you that there's a heaven and a hell and an eternity in which you are going to live? Can I tell you about that? Do we get passionate about that? Think about the things over which we express our deepest passions what is our passion about Christ in relation to that? Listen, I'm convicted. I love watching college football, and there's a certain college team I love, and I have been known to stand on the couch and yell during a, a football game. My neighbors might not like me standing on their couching and yelling at them about Christ, but you get the picture. Are we that passionate about Christ? It doesn't matter. Spurgeon said famously, 
I know you've probably heard this quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Wow. In his book, Lectures to My Students, Spurgeon is talking to a college of pastors and he says... He asks two levels of questions. He says, do the people under your pastoral care have the privilege of you uttering their name before heaven's court daily? It's a heavy load. Then he goes on, do you as a Christian, are you so faithful that your neighbors, your acquaintances, the people who know you, your family members, do they have the privilege of knowing you because you bring their name before God's throne Begging him to save them. Don't take me wrong. You are God's gift to your neighborhood. You are God's gift to your family. If you know the gospel, you are God's gift to your work. You're God's gift to your classmates. God's gift to your school. You are God's gift of the life-saving message of Christ. Is there anything more important Can we join together to make a commitment that by I'm not like giving up the ghost and becoming of an Arminian, but I mean this. You willing to take the commitment, make the commitment that by the end of this year you will have led one person to Christ? And if so, then another. Oh, you can't say that, Rick. Only God. How about if, you, if that bothers your theology, how about this? That you are rejected by as many people as possible because you've given the gospel. Does that make you feel better? You can have that one. Why? Because obeying the great commission is because we're obeying the great command. That's why we evangelize. Not because we're guilty, not because we need more money in the church, need more people to come. We we obey the great commission because we honor the great command. What's the great command? Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? He says, you want the first one? I'll give you number one and number two. The great commandment, the, the one that overarches over all commandments is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And before they can start talking about whether he was right or not, he says, this is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. We often say, well, that's number one, that's number two. No, the second is like it means it brings them into parallel focus as the great commandment. It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two, commandments depend the whole law and prophets. So why do we evangelize? Why? What's our motive? Because we love God and because we love others. Let's say, say it from the other angle. If, if we don't evangelize, 
then our problem is we don't love God or we don't love others. And a footnote to that is we don't believe God. We don't believe that there's really a hell, that there's the hope of heaven, that there's consequences for sin. We don't believe there's an accounting for you and me to give an account for the stewardship he's given us. That's the gospel. I think evangelism reveals a heart that loves God. If you love God, you'll love his word, Psalm 119 says. If you love God, you'll obey his command to evangelize in 1 John 5, 3. If you love God, you'll love God's people and want to see more of them, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. If you love God, you'll want to tell the world about the glorious deeds of God and all he's done. Psalm 96, if you love God, you'll love the glory he receives when a soul is saved, Luke 15, 10. And you can think of more and more and more demonstrations of loving God. But if you love others, you want to fellowship with them as believers. You want, you want them to be a spiritual sibling. If you love others, you'll agonize over their salvation. Remember what Paul said, Romans 9, would that I could be accursed that my brethren would know Christ. You'll agonize over it. If you love others, you'll want to do good to them. Galatians 6.10, if you love others, you'll treat them as you treat yourself. Mark 12.31, if you love others, you'll speak the truth to them. You'll tell them what's right and wrong about heaven and hell. You will humble yourself and take on his mission as your own, even more than any pursuit we have in this world. I know what some of you are thinking. I just don't feel like I'm ready. I, don't, I feel like I need some training. And I'm happy for us to have training in evangelism. All the more, all the better. Praise God. Let me relieve you. If you know enough to be saved, then you know enough to evangelize. Can I say it another way? If you don't know enough to evangelize, you don't know enough to be converted. If you can't tell someone how they can go to heaven, you don't know the way yourself. What is evangelism? My favorite verse on evangelism is an odd passage on evangelism, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you are a chosen race. He uses Old Testament imagery. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that, here it is, so that God saved you, so that you will proclaim the excellencies, the attributes, the glories, the greatness of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Evangelism is telling people what's great about Jesus. You can't do that without being biblical and without getting into the gospel nuances. Then I love what he says next. You know why? Because you, you were once not a people. You were unsaved. You were on your way to hell. You were running your hell-bound race as we sing. You were not the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. What do we sing? Well, maybe, maybe some of you are too young to remember this, but some of us who have grayer hair. Rescue the, what? Perishing. 
We want to rescue people who are dying and going to hell because we love God and because we love them and because the gospel matters. I get it. I have been nervous in the middle of an evangelistic opportunity. I have been terrified. But do you, those of you who've shared the gospel, do you know those parallel feelings you can have of unspeakable exhilaration and absolute terror at the same time? Have you felt that? Isn't that wonderful? Makes us dependent. What's the takeaway? Well, can we do can we do that? I did some math. I talked to Larry Hildebrand and Ben and John Rosenbaum and Jordan. They helped me with this math. Watch this. Last Sunday, adults in the worship service, I think we had exactly 500, wasn't it? Right on 500. Let's just assume for a moment that we were all believers and every one of us Want someone to Christ in this next year. You know what that would mean? 500 new souls going to heaven. You like that math? Watch this. You're going to be more impressed with this. What if all of us won two people to Christ this year? That would be a thousand people newly converted to worship Jesus Christ. What if, I won't keep going. You get it? Here's what I'm praying. I'd love to see that happen. But I'm praying that 500 of us proclaim the gospel. 500 are saved and a thousand more hear and even turn away. Because remember, Paul said, some people plant, some people sow, some people water, but God causes the growth. And we don't know where we are in that, in that process. We don't know. Let me just ask you, will you pray about, will you talk with your care group, will you talk with your family, pray about making this a commitment in your own heart, one than another. Let me ask you again, is there anyone who includes you, right now that you know of, as a part of their salvation story, well, let's plant some seeds this year and see many, many come to faith. Father, please energize and encourage us, convict us, not with guilt, but with hope of sharing in your love for people turning from sin and embracing your son. Oh God, please, please, I beg you, Give each of us the opportunity to lead one person to your son. And then another person. And another. And another. In Jesus' name, amen.